Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Um, currently in First Corinthians 11, if you want to turn your Bibles to that section right there. And um, let me pray as you do. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness towards us, your people. Thank you, Father, for the way in which you, as sovereign, the supreme one who is in ultimate control of all things, that, Lord, you make your will known and you empower us through the cross of Christ and the power of the resurrection to walk in your way, to even understand your way. And, um, Lord, we realize that truly Jesus is the way. And so, um, Lord, as we gather today, Lord, we pray that the reality of that would be imprinted on our hearts, that we would seek the way and walk in it, that our hearts would be submitted to yours, Lord, that ultimately we would be conformed to your image and your likeness as we receive instruction and illumination from your word. Speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ relates to every person in every place, regardless of culture, class, regardless of age, regardless of gender. And in the light of the gospel, we recognize that we are wrong and God is right. That's the first step. That's the first port of call as we engage with the gospel. We recognize that we are wrong and God is right. Now, just that in itself can be hard for people to accept. It can be hard for us to deal with that we are wrong and God is right. Even every time I'm saying it, it's probably kind of touching you in a certain way to think, That seems like a very absolute statement. It's not we are wrong some of the time. We are wrong in some ways or just in some of our views or part of the time or some of our actions. We are wrong. That's what the gospel tells us. This is why Christ came. And yet, God doesn't leave us in that place. He says, you are wrong, but I will make you right. And how does that happen? Through the spotless lamb of God coming and dying in our place for our wrongs. Taking the punishment, the penalty as Bertram so clearly communicated during communion. Taking the punishment for our wrong. In order that we would be proclaimed right in God's eternal court of justice. And then we experience the outworking of that reality progressively, and that's what the Bible calls sanctification, where the reality of being made right by Jesus is then worked out in our lives, step by step, day by day. And as a result, we, both male and female, become more like Jesus. And that is the hope that we have in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
And so as we jump back into the text today and we begin to unpack it further, I know it felt last week like I rolled my sleeves up on the guys, single men in particular. If it felt like that, I don't make any apologies. You see, it's like when a parent says, as they're about to correct their child, I do this because I love you. It hurts me more than it hurts. Some of you heard that growing up, right? It hurts me that it hurt more than it hurts you. And at that point, the child's like, so let me beat you then, isn't it? <laughs> and feel the most pain. <laughs> but undoubtedly, there are those times where we need those course corrections. We need to be braced up, turned about, and given our marching orders. And so there is some more of that this week in different ways. And so as we jump into the text, we shall see how that unfolds. So we're in 1 Corinthians 11, looking at verses 1 to 16. And um, again, if you've not been here for the last couple of weeks, do look at um, the podcast for the previous few couple of weeks because it's going to help to give a much clearer context to what I'm sharing. Now, having read it right through for the last few weeks, what I'm going to do is just try and walk through these verses. We got to um, verse 4 last week, so I'll, I'll read up to verse 4 and then we'll step into verse 5 and then begin the breakdown. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. So in verse 4, we talked last week about gender distinction and the need for men to look like men, to be men, as dishonors their head. Paul's already clearly stated that Christ is the head of every man. It was a blessing in the community groups as we were able to kind of unpack further practically what is the significance of gender distinctions today for us. I know Pastor Rob's community group didn't get out there until midnight or something like that. And so it's definitely the place to unpack these in practical senses. Um, encourage you to, to, to get in where you fit in with regards to the community groups. But we consider gender distinction. We consider the fact that in relation to verse 4, it's speaking of a man's hair, which again is reaffirmed in verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. And so the focus there is don't dishonor God by dishonoring his order of creation. Now, consider this. We've established that our appearance makes a statement. And what we'll go on to see is our appearance makes a statement for or against the authority of God. For or against the authority of God. From these verses we see that men and women are made in God's image. In part to represent God's authority on the earth. Our lives as his people are to reflect God's godliness. Fundamental to that is his authority. 
And so as we glorify God and we endeavor to do all things to the glory of God, one aspect of that is how we communicate the supremacy of God's authority by the way in which we interact with one another. When men and women disobey God's authority, they do not represent God's authority well. When we defy and rebel against God's authority, as his people, we misrepresent his authority. We degrade, devalue, and dishonor his authority. We violate his authority and offend the representation of his authority. Now, in all places and of all people, the church is supposed to know God's authority, right? We should obey God's authority and represent God's authority. And so this is what's being communicated here in verse 4 when he says it dishonors his head. When a man doesn't walk with a clear identity as a man, where he is even intentional in seeking to morph his identity into that which is feminine, he's saying, even though God made men and women in the beginning and he made them different in his image and likeness to glorify him, that doesn't matter. Likewise, in verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. So what did we say about the woman's head covering in that time? It represented marriage. Yeah? Her having her head veiled represented the fact that she was married. Marriage was instituted by God. It is God's invention. And so, to be married, but act as if you're not, is to dishonor, ultimately, God. The woman dishonors her husband, and in dishonoring her husband, she dishonors God. And it is, if, it is the same as if her head were shaven. So we talked about the fact that Temple prostitutes, those who were guilty of adultery, were used to having their heads shaven as an indication of them being loose women. And so that, in the light of the gospel, is how severe the statement is when a married woman carries on as if she ain't. Basically, you, you just... Well, you won't carry in as if you won't acknowledge and honor and cherish and esteem your marital relationship and the presentation of that to the world. You might as well say you're a loose woman. And this is what he goes on to elaborate in verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, it's Paul saying, look, all right, ladies, if you don't want to cover your head and cut it off, it's cool. Just do that. Nah. It's, let me give you an example of what this statement is like. When I was younger, um, as it will probably be no surprise to you, I used to love my food. And one of my favorite meals right was when my gran used to make homemade chips so she used to peel the potatoes and chop up the chips and fry the chips herself none of this oven chips business and one day my dad was about and he came and he, I was sitting there eating and I had a pile of chips on my plate and I was happy I was take, you know when you're just savoring it you just take your time I was just taking my time over the food 
some egg and some beans. Yeah. But dad, come. Let, let, me, let me take a, two, a few chips, son. My face. You know, like you see them scenes in prison when they eat, like, with one hand over the, the knife ready to stab anyone that would dare try and interfere with the plate. So my dad was like, ah, oh, so you don't want to give me no chips then, yeah? All right then, well, if you're not going to give me any, I'll, I'll just take all of them. Don't have none. I'm like, what? He said, yeah, don't forget that you come from me, you know. And so, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be able to enjoy any chips at all. So I might as well just take the whole lot. Well, you can imagine that I quickly portioned out some for him. (laughs) And so, Paul's communicating that sense of, look, if you're going to take this step in the wrong direction, you might as well go all the way then, right? Because that's what you're basically doing. That's basically what you're communicating. And so if you won't cover your head, then shave it off. Just show everyone what you're really about. Independent, yeah, um, self-determined, you know, not, not answerable to anyone. You're not, no, do your thing, yeah, do your thing. Show them what you're about then. But since it is disgraceful, now, you wouldn't, you, 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 you know, take the veil off your head and wear your hair long as a respectable woman, but you won't shave your head because that's shameful. And you don't want to bring shame on yourself like that. So you know what you want to do? If you don't want to bring shame on yourself like that, don't bring shame on your marriage union, on your husband, and the, the name of the Lord. Cover your head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So Paul says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Now this is speaking in terms of authority. This is speaking not specifically in terms of as a whole person, man is given to reflect the image and glory of God in all his ways. But specifically in the context of authority, specifically in the context of headship. We know that that is the context by reason of the fact that the word head is used multiple times in this section right here. And the headship of Christ and God the Father is established from verse 3. And so this is a continuation of that thought. Man was, was not made from woman. But woman from man. So man was made first. And as you flash back to the garden, you will remember that God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. From, that, from the use of the King James Version, it says, Helper meet for him. And so we kind of have transliterated the, the phrase helpmate. Now, the wife is a helpmate, but when the King James Version is saying helper meet, it's saying fit or suited to him. And so woman was made from man and for man. So in view of this, we see that there is a a, a chain, if you like. God made man, and from man made woman. And that's all that Paul is really identifying and recognizing here. Look, man, in terms of 
and, and when I say man, I'm talking about a male, and specifically a husband, is given for the representation of the image and glory of God's authority. Now, some people will have a problem with this and be like, that sounds really kind of undermining. That that seems like a put down to women. That she is the man's helper. That the wife is the husband's helper. And that she was made for the husband. Now, think about this. In... John, Jesus spoke of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And one of the foremost terms that he used for the role of the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was that he's the helper of the church. Now we're talking about the third person of the Trinity. We're talking about God's spirit. The term is paraclete. One who comes alongside to strengthen, to aid, to assist, to encourage. Now, if we see, and I'm quite happy to appreciate that the Holy Spirit plays that role in the life of the church, and yet... His status isn't undermined. His status isn't changed. The fact that the Holy Spirit is God is not in any way reduced, made less of, or diminished by reason of his role. We appreciate that the same is likewise true for the wife. And so there we see, fundamentally, that God's order of creation and his order of authority is to be reflected through the relationship of the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. Now, we know that this is an imperative thing. This is so important because in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul himself said, look, the the marriage union is a mystery that speaks of Christ and the church. And so we recognize that the marriage union is supposed to exemplify and portray and be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, his bride. And so Paul is restating that fact here in another way. That as the woman rightly relates to her husband, She is recognizing his God-given headship, which is just that. It's God-given. And as he carries out his headship, serving his wife as a servant leader, he's reflecting God's headship. And it all tends toward the greater glory of God. And so, man in his authority, the role of the husband in his authority is to image and glorify God. And as the woman relates to the man, she honors his headship and in turn adds to the glory and the weight of God's image being reflected in terms of authority. Now, some would look at, but woman is the glory of man and say, so what? Is, is woman supposed to be like that, that the trophy wife, right? 
the trophy wife who, like the, the women of the world, on the arms of their footballing husbands or their billionaire banker husbands. You know, they, they, they look the part and at all the dinner parties, they, they fit in nicely and, you know, they really make the husband look good by the, the choice that he's made. Well, yes. But not based on appearances in terms of how attractive they are physically, but in terms of godliness. In terms of godliness. As it says in First Peter 3, don't let your adorning and your fixing up and your dressing up and your making up and your no, I was going to say weaving up, but that might have sounded kind of derogatory, right? No. Be merely outward. But let it be the hidden person of the heart reflecting the beauty. And so there is a sense in which the godly wife is a trophy wife. Furthermore, Paul says that we are all, as believers, trophies of righteousness. Trophies of God's grace. I went to my nephew's house yesterday and loads of football trophies in the living room. And each of those trophies that were his represented... Something good about him. Now, what does, how does a woman being the glory of the man communicate something good about the man? Well, it communicates that his position and his place given by God is good because God gave it. And so bring on the godly trophy wife. That is something to aspire to. That is something to, as Paul talked about, cover in the best gifts. That's something to press toward and to aim for. And one of the ways that's most clearly communicated is through the way in which the wife interacts with the husband. So verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's why she ought to wear her veil, wear her indication of marital commitment and esteeming of the marriage union. Because of the angels. Now, this phrase right here is a problem. There are a few different things that it can mean. The word angel, angelos, in Greek is used as messenger. And of the 51 times that it's used in the New Testament, three times it speaks of people. So in Galatians 4, Paul speaks about being an angel to the church. You receive me as an angel, being a messenger. And so it could be that it's referring to those messengers that would come to the church that they're able to sort of distinguish, well, who's married and who's not, and not get themselves into trouble. It could be related to Ephesians 3, where we've already seen Paul communicate, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Note that. Unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
And so it could be that it's actually speaking of, in this sense, the actual angels, the invisible beings who surround us, who Hebrews tells us are heirs for the, um, those who are, um, are ministers, for those who are heirs of salvation, actively involved in our lives as believers, invisibly so. That they would witness the wonder of God's order of creation and see the wisdom of God outworked in that. It could even go a step further to refer to the fallen angels likewise seeing such a revelation. Now, when I say fallen angels, that's another term for demons. And we see, as we were going through the book of Acts, there was an occasion with the seven sons of Sceva, right? Where they, as they spoke through this possessed individual, as they were trying to be exorcised of demons by these Jewish exorcists, they responded and said, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? Those Jewish exorcists had no authority in the realm of the spirit. They had no recognition by those fallen angels. Now, let's just assume Paul was referring to every sense. That they're all equally true. It's entirely significant, right? Whichever way you look at it, wherever your conviction lies, it's important and it's significant. Then in verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So he hits the nail on the head. All of this independent woman listen there ain't no like ah, pull up that tune and bin it in the Lord huh, in the Lord woman is not independent of man nor man of woman So let's just get that straight. Maybe in the world, that's what they're going on with. And we don't expect any better because that's, that's their thing. Sinners sin because they're sinners. But in the Lord, all these independent ladies, I can't even remember how the tune goes. Some of you can, you can hear it in your head right now, isn't it? Listen, no independence. We are interdependent. We are interdependent. And that goes for both and primarily for husbands and wives, but also in the body of Christ. In the next chapter, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that we're one body and we all are to contribute towards one another's lives. And so don't be going on like, I don't need no man. Tell me nothing. Because I pay my bills. Buy my car. When I'm out, I buy my drinks at the bar. Hmm. Neck flexing, head rolling, teeth kissing. No. It's not to be named among us. So, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Okay, so woman was made from man, but 
Males are born from women. And that's a reflection of the relationship of interdependence. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now again, that is a reference to the situation within the culture. It's like, come on, look at things for what they are. Does that make sense? That a wife, as a believer, is going to stand up with her head uncovered and dishonor God and yet be praying to God. The very God that she's dishonoring by her appearance. It's a contradiction in terms that don't make sense. A man's going to wear his hair long like a woman, dishonor his gender distinction that is given by God, and yet say he's going to pray or prophesy? Does it make sense? Verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And so again, you'll remember that. For the unmarried woman to wear long hair was a sign of respectability. It was a sign that indicated that, you know what? I'm not trying to come across suggestive, flirtatious, alluring, promiscuous. I'm a respectable woman. And so her long hair was for her glory, for her honor. It was a status symbol that, that established her as being a decent and respectable, honorable woman. So if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. So if anyone wants to contend with, about this, you know what, we don't get down like that. And you won't see that in any of the churches. This is just how it is as the people of God. And so we see, and um, I wanted to just walk through the text like that so I could kind of just bring home um, a few very, very important observations in terms of where in our culture we're at in relation to this. You see, the, the married woman is to recognize and honor her marital relationship. And the means by which she's to do that is to recognize the God-given place of her husband in that relationship. And if she doesn't do that, she's basically communicating that she's no better than the prostitute out on the street. In relation to the way that she views God and views his authority. And his order of creation. Now, just thinking for a second before I, I really kind of take some time to address the marital relationship. We see in verse 5 slash 6 that it is disgraceful. A woman shouldn't have her head shaven. It was a disgrace in the culture and it definitely wasn't to be in place in the church. And so for the single woman who was getting caught up in this first century feminism, independent woman movement, there was a message to her. Don't jump on that bandwagon and don't adopt those values and morals. 
And you see, for us today, we see that expressed in different ways. Last week we talked about the challenge of single men and single women connecting and working towards building a relationship in such a way that would honor and glorify God, would preserve their sanctification, and would minimize pain that can be experienced during the course of that. And as much as last week I identified the fact that, you know what, that's a challenge for guys in terms of how they conduct themselves properly and appropriately as they endeavor to take that journey, I also appreciate that it's it's a challenge for women as well. It's a challenge for single ladies. Because in the world it was easy. All I need to do is to dress up or down, if you get what I'm saying, whichever way you look at it. Make sure my makeup is set right, my hair be did right. I go to the the wine bar or 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 the club or wherever. Go with my ladies, go with my girls. And undoubtedly, I'm going to attract attention. Now, we know that's, that's commonly how it works today. And for some of you ladies, that used to be your MO, your, your mode of operation. And so when you step into the church now and you're in Christ, you kind of almost feel as though you've been stripped of the means by which you can even begin to pursue or, or, or engage with males with a desire to connect and build. And let me encourage you ladies, and I thank God it's not really an issue that we have around here, too tough. But let me encourage you, don't fall into the the trap of thinking you need to resort to some of your old methods and means. And so, the skirts don't have to get a little bit lower. And the, 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 the drop on the top don't have to get a little bit lower. And I can imagine that it can be quite challenging, especially the longer that you're single. And you're praying and you're like, Lord, I I ain't got the gift of singleness. I know that much. And the brothers seem to be backward in coming forward. How do I help them? Sisters, let me encourage you. Don't fall into that trap. You see, for some it can be appearance. For some it can be inappropriate interaction. Jesus said, guard your hearts with all diligence. Guard your hearts with all diligence. And so we know that earthly wisdom has never achieved the righteousness of God. You can trust the Lord that your godliness and your righteousness, your godly demeanor and attitude is such that it is sufficient. I heard John MacArthur when addressing, briefly addressing the issue of, of singleness and and pairing up and how do you kind of get to that place where you want to, you know, genuinely be married and you want to kind of meet that guy that's going to be the guy or you're going to meet that girl. And he said, be the person that you want to meet. 
If you want a godly person who's focused and committed, committed to God's word and loves Jesus, engaged in healthy relationships with his people, and then be that person. And that's sound and wise advice from a mature man of God. And as much as it might be tempting to try and um, speed the process, remember what happened to Abraham. God showed Abraham, okay, I'm going to give you a son. And through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was like, yeah. And five years later, okay, what's going on? Where's the son? Ten years later. To the point where Abraham gets itchy feet and it's like, this is taking too long. Hagar, what are you saying? And he produces an Ishmael, which was the, the, the bane. It was the fawn in the flesh of Abraham and his descendants, even to this day. Ishmael's the father of the Arab nations. And so, remember Abraham whenever you may feel kind of tempted to try and hasten the process. Because the last thing you want is an Ishmael plaguing the rest of your life. Even after God has fulfilled his word to you. And yet to the married woman... I must say that there's a certain degree of heaviness with which I consider this. Because I think that this issue being raised here is probably one of the most serious issues plaguing the church today. And I say that because the seriousness of it is partly due to the fact that it's concealed and it's not always evident. Now, I know that sounds cryptic, but listen, there is something that I have witnessed with my own eyes over the years that I've been involved in ministry and that I've been a Christian. And that is, godly men silently suffering at the hands of ungodly wives. There was a point at which I thought to myself, actually, this is very deep. Because I see these godly men who love Jesus being exploited, being undermined, being despised by their wives. And it's because they know that their husbands are godly. The husband ain't about to grab them by the neck, give them some slaps and throw them down. He's a godly man. The husband ain't about to take all her clothes and throw them out a door and change the locks and tell her not to come back. Because he's a godly man. He's a sacrificial dude who loves his wife like Christ loves the church. And she knows it and she abuses that as she abuses him. Let me, let me paint a picture a little more clearly of this wife. Let's just call her Married Marge. 
And she's married to Godly Graham. And she is dishonoring her husband and she's dishonoring God. And these are the ways. She's clamorous. She's loud. She's coarse. She's given to humiliating and embarrassing her husband without thinking twice. Feels no way to belittle him in public. To patronize. To be condescending. Quick to blow up his faults in front of others. She doesn't feel no way to express her dissatisfaction. Maybe it's his earning power. What kind of wages do you bring in anyway? Even her sexual dissatisfaction. She's contentious like a spoilt child. Throws tantrums demanding her way. She's defiantly rebellious against her husband, even to the point of violently attacking him. Listen, I'm talking about literal living examples that I have seen with my own eyes. By women who profess Christ. Manipulative. It's not uncommon that she won't speak to her husband for weeks. She will withhold sex from him as a means of manipulation or even use sex as a means of manipulation to get her way. She will undermine his decisions. Maybe they have children. The husband's saying... You know what, in all godliness, I don't want you to watch that program. I don't want you to go to that place. Mom's like, Archer, don't worry about it. Look, here's some, here's some money. Let me know when you're coming back. Hmm. She has to have her way when major decisions are being made with regards to money and other choices. Even to the point when the husband will say no and she will just go and do it anyway. You don't even know. When it comes to the house, maybe she's one of those who barely does what she has to. She only cooks because she needs to eat and when she don't need to eat, she don't cook. She doesn't take care of her husband. And she doesn't take care of or a share in the things of the home. She will insist her husband goes to work and comes home and deals with the house. She poisons the children against the husband. Teaches them to disrespect and disregard him. Especially in, this, in, the, in those situations where there's a blended family. Children from a prior relationship. She can be flirtatious. Not caring about her husband's views of how she dresses, but dressing for other men. Maybe filled with selfish ambition. She cares more about the car that she drives. The house and its location and its appearance and the, the, the uh, interior design. The career over the family. Even pressurizing her husband to work all the hours so that a certain level of lifestyle can be maintained. Maybe she is one who is open and evidently kind to others, 
whilst being spiteful and despising her own husband. Very often we see that the wife in such scenarios doesn't enjoy fellowship. She doesn't engage in fellowship. Furthermore, she isolates herself. Because as Proverbs says, the one who isolates themselves seeks their own desire and rages against all judgment. She hates accountability because she's a private person. You see, although the fiercely independent Openly dishonoring wife may not be evidently common among us. It is unfortunate that it is all too common behind closed doors and under the surface. You see, as considering this wife and the dynamics of such a relationship it could be an opportunity for cheap jokes the wife beater the woman who bosses her husband the woman who treats her husband more like her child than her husband But this dishonors God. This dishonors God because of the clear disregard and undermining of the place of headship that God gave her husband. And I'd like to suggest, even in light of verse 10, that there is a a demonic element or aspect or dimension to such an attitude because that gives place to Satan look what happened to the sons of Sceva they had no authority and they got battered one of the fundamental things that characterizes such a wife is that She is out for her own glory. And yet is not given to the true and genuine glorifying of God through the honoring of her husband as head. And that doesn't mean that she can't have influence. That doesn't mean that she can't even disagree with her husband. But there's a way in which that is to be done agreeably and in a godly fashion. And you see, there are so many guys who are found in a place where they're with such a wife and they don't even really know what to do. Because back in the day, it would have been simple. You know what? If I don't beat her, I leave her. Simple. I just take my stuff and go. Why put up with this? Am I dumb? And yet the man's godly. He loves Jesus. He's committed to his wife. He's committed to the vows that he made. And so my word to you, if you're a man in that place, bruv, stand your ground. And having done all to stand, stand. And you don't cave in And you don't concede to such manipulation and contention and spite and undermining. You verbally and clearly disagree in an agreeable way. And even though you are being attacked and humiliated, you know, it's interesting. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, husbands love your wives. You don't say that to the wives. 
It says, wives, respect your husbands. Because it's recognized that one of the deepest things that a woman needs is to be loved, to be cherished, to be affirmed and approved in that way. And yet one of the man's deepest needs, and it's God-given, is to be honored and to be respected. So even though you're being humiliated and embarrassed, you know what? Having done all to stand, you stand. And you suffer that like Christ. And you oppose and you disagree and you put forward the will of God and the word of God and continually call your wife to consider and call her to account based on the word of God. And you get support And you endeavor to bring in some kind of spiritual authority that is going to contribute light to the situation. Because we recognize that the sin is increased in darkness. And so you get help. Get support. Introduce accountability. Declare the word of God. And do what's right. Continuing to serve. You see, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is what it means for a husband to love his wife like Christ loved the church. When we were sinners, sticking two fingers up at God, Christ died for us. And it's a hard road to travel. And yet we see that God is faithful. And he will intervene. And particularly if the wife is professing to be Christian. And you're feeling like, well, what, what? I have authority in my house, but I don't have no power to, 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 to fulfill it and to carry it through. Because I know my power ain't in my fists. What do I do? Well, this is where church discipline comes into the picture. And it's supposed to reinforce and back up the headship of the husband in the house. Listen, the Puritans were a movement of people committed to God, committed to his word. They embraced the truths of the Reformation and they began to apply a different kind of church order. And there was one occasion where On this occasion, it was a man who refused to sleep with his wife. And so they came before the elders. My husband refuses to sleep with me. Is this right, sir? You refuse to sleep with your wife? Yes, I refuse. But the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 7 that your body is not your own. That you must give unto your wife her conjugal rights. No. Not having it. Not doing it. Okay? Well, we have to put you out of the church as an unbeliever. Until you repent and honor the word of God. Does that sound extreme? You don't have to answer that. That's righteous. Now, imagine if husbands started bringing their wives before the elders... My wife won't sleep with me. She hasn't slept with me for three months. Same scenario, replayed. The word of God stands. And so all is not lost 
husbands, if you are in that place. And wives, if you've seen a glimpse of your character through that previous description. It makes us all the more grateful for the cross before which we repent and submit our hearts to Jesus as Lord afresh. Maybe that's all you've known. Maybe that's the example that you've seen growing up. Now you know differently. To dishonor your husband is to dishonor God. And no amount of prayer meeting, speaking in tongues, reciting scripture, playing praise music in the house is going to undo that. Now, next week, we will look at how this relates to 1 Timothy 2. And following that, we will look at, in the final week, how Paul's approval of women praying and prophesying in this text, 1 Corinthians 11, interacts with his disapproval of women as pastors. In 1 Timothy 2. How that interacts. And what the picture of the female vocal contribution is able to look like. Amen. Let's pray.